Welcome to the second part of our extended conversation with Gary Gerstel at the Review of Democracy, where we are discussing Gary Gerstel's new monograph, The Rise and Fall of the Neoliberal Order, America and the World in the Free Market Era. In the first part of our conversation released last week, we covered Gary Gerstel's interpretation of the long durée history of liberalism, his encompassing approach to the study of political orders, how the neoliberal order became hegemonic in the US, and why the Soviet Union is in fact crucial to an understanding of the history of the United States. In today's second episode, Gerstel will discuss how and why the opposed moral perspectives of liberals and conservatives in fact both proved eminently compatible with the neoliberal political order. He will address the controversial question why the neoliberal order used the coercive power of the state to incarcerate millions of Americans. And last but not least, we shall discuss the ways in which we may observe the retreat of neoliberal hegemony today. When you would talk to Europeans about contemporary America and contemporary American history, a lot of people would think about cultural polarization. Uh, you know, you have a very strong religious right. And nowadays, you also have all, all kinds of new progressive movements, anti-racist mobilization, you know, things that are actually not that visible in Europe, I should say. And I think this is an important question because what you show in the book is that the cultural polarization, which might be so visible and in a sense so obvious to, to various observers, could go hand in hand with broad agreement uh, concerning questions of political economy, right? You distinguish between the Republican insistence on a neo-Victorian morality, you know, that they have been propagating for decades now, and that the, the Democrats have a very different discourse uh, uh, concerning multiculturalism and cosmopolitanism and diversity and all, all those sorts of uh, concepts, uh, but that these, these are both eminently compatible with neoliberalism, right? That's your point. So I was wondering whether you could say more about how can both of these seemingly very different cultural attitudes and cultural projects be reconciled with this type of political economy? And what is then the role or what might be the function of all the cultural polarization we see under an, the neoliberal order? Well, thank you for that. Um, the um, a lot of people only see uh, cultural polarization in the United States um, today. Uh, that's not just true of Europeans. That's, that's true of many Americans. Uh, this will be a controversial point with my American readers uh, 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 as well. The, uh, but I do say that the, uh, I, uh, as I, I said earlier in our, uh, in our hour together, um, uh, there are there are moral dimensions to political order, and the best way to understand what I mean by a moral dimension is what story is being told about the good life and how 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 to achieve it. That's my that's how I understand that that ultimately has to be a moral story. How to how does one um, uh, live and achieve a good life on, on, in this political order? Um, what the Republicans worry about is. Um, market excess, uh, 
they love markets. Neoliberals love markets because they free up the individual. But there's always a temptation toward excess that you will spend as a consumer more than you have, that you will indulge um, uh, pornography, that you will um, you will you will spend too much money. You will you uh, you will you will become a victim of consumer marketing. Um, uh, you will spend more than you earn. Uh, how can you be a responsible member of society? How do you resist these temptations? The New Deal answer to that was, of course, well, you regulate the economy. You, you limit what markets can do. And you distribute enough welfare to individuals to make sure they have enough to support themselves in a in a decent life. Now that kind of <clears throat> that kind of policy is anathema to Republicans. So they say something else. They say, <clears throat> in order to to be a successful player in the market economy, you must be disciplined. You must balance your bank account at the end of every month. You must not go into debt. Uh, you must not be temptation by uh, sexuality um, um, and just um, immediate gratification of any sort. How do you do that? You have a good family life. Um, you have a good patriarchal family. You raise your children well. Mother and father with clearly defined roles. Father goes out to work. Uh, mother stays home as the nurturer, you know, very traditional conception of, of family life uh, with very traditional roles for men and women. You raise children in these circumstances. You educate them. You prepare them for markets. You prepare them for good jobs. You, you tell them how to deal with disappointment. <laughs> you teach them from an early age that they have to balance the books. They cannot simply go into debt wildly so. Uh, I call this neo-Victorian because this was thought to have flourished in 19th century England under Queen Victoria. And those people who are who were most out front in terms of advocating for this in the 1980s and 1990s were historians like Gertrude Himmelfarb, who studied 19th century Victorian Britain. But she was also very prominent in politics, married to Irving Kristol, the editor of the public interest, a very, very important conservative neoliberal journal of the 1980s and 90s. So she said, Britain has done this in the 19th century with classical liberalism and strong families. We're trying to do something similar with classical liberalism and strong families. We can do it too. So this becomes the message of the Republicans. And so that makes them suspicious of all efforts to um, free women from the home, um, allow people to be homosexual if they are, as opposed to compelling them to be heterosexual. Uh, it also privileges uh, certain kinds of Americans because they're thought to be more disciplined and have more virtue than other groups of Americans. You know, it comes with all kinds of uh, baggage attached to it. The other moral code is is very different. This is what I call a cosmopolitanism. What is it? It, it in a sense says embrace the market. Ironically, this now comes from the left. Uh, what does the market promise? The market promises you can be anybody you want to be. It doesn't matter what family you were born into. It doesn't matter what's, what um, uh, gender was assigned to you at birth. It, it doesn't matter what your sexuality is. It doesn't matter who you marry. 
it doesn't matter where you live. The, the um, neoliberalism promises a global world of exchange. Now, at first it gets primarily defined in terms of the global exchange of goods, but it quickly becomes an opportunity for people to experiment with all kinds of identities, to, to travel, to see the world, to see how other people live, to find within this big world all kinds of sub-communities defined by ethnicity, by sexuality, by, by race, by ideology or affiliation. Uh, it, it, it opens up a world of possible identities uh, for people that may have not been accessible before. And this is what draws a lot of what had been the left into neoliberalism, because the collapse of communism creates a crisis within the, in the left, everywhere in the world. How can we hang on to our belief in revolution, our belief in secular emancipation, if the most spectacular experiment of revolution failed so abysmally? Well, one of the answers is that, well, we can pour our emancipatory energies into identity rather than into a socialist revolution. We can explore our, our identi identities as women, as feminists, as gays, um, as, as ethnic separatists, <laughs> uh, as, as religious groups. Um, we have an opportunity to do this in ways that had not been available to us before. And my point is that neoliberalism in, um, allows this kind of, these sorts of yearnings to flourish. And it involves a very, and it draws to neoliberalism in the global world that neoliberalism created. It draws into that world um, all sorts of people who otherwise would have stood apart from it because it carries with it a, um, a promise of personal freedom, of reinvention, of choosing one's identity. This, I argue, is as compatible with a market economy that neoliberalism promises, promises, as is the patriarchal nuclear family disciplining institution of the Republican Party. And both exist for a long time comfortably in a neoliberal world. And they exist comfortably as long as this neoliberal world is delivering on its promise of abundance and affluence, or appears to be leading people toward that, because the differences between these cultural worldviews is so profound and so deep that if neoliberalism begins to fail to deliver on its political economy, then these two conflicting moral codes of life, which have been coexisting and tolerating each other, are not going to tolerate each other any longer. And so we see that in the wake of the economic crash of 2008 and 2009, when a lot of the promise, economic promise of neoliberalism goes up in smoke and has never returned, then suddenly the differences between that these, the, these different cultural ways of living that the, the neoliberalism has been fostering become much more antagonistic toward each other and begin to fight each other often quite viciously. 
Yes, that's certainly one of the most fascinating aspects of the of the book that you also show also show how certain trends um, among the new leftists, among new new leftist thought, in fact feeds into the making of neoliberalism, right? You talk about Ralph Nader and also the critique of bureaucratization, state control, conformism, and things like that, you know, issues that the new left is really very critical about and thinking about the project of liberation, but then this really also is, is something that can fed into the, the neoliberal project of emancipation, right? Because there was a kind of emancipatory promise at least to to neoliberalism uh, but then there is really another side which i wanted us to to talk about next and you know i of course come from uh, eastern europe i was born in the in the 1980s and you know when uh, soviet uh, communism uh, collapsed uh, we of course uh, had a lot of discussion about how oppressive it was and of course the oppression had a lot to do with incarceration right prisons also camps and there was really a very widespread uh, discussion about this kind of repression terroristic aspects, if you wish, uh, of the of the former regimes. And of course, the US was a land of freedom, or if you wish, an empire of liberty or so. And this was the discourse. But, but at the very same time, and this is something you show very nicely uh, in the book, and you really put a great emphasis on it, that the neoliberal order also implied the denial of liberty uh, to those who were supposedly unable to to handle these the privileges and the responsibilities that true liberty also implied and in fact what happened was that mass incarceration spiked uh, in the US uh, and of course the military uh, industrial complex if you wish or or or, or the US military was built up ever further uh, throughout uh, these decades so i was wondering how you view that i mean do you see this spike in in, in incarceration as a blatant self-contradiction, or is it in some sense perhaps a logical, uh, if of course highly problematic, uh, feature of this neoliberal order? Well, that's a great question, and um, I'm hesitating just because I think I want to answer both. <laughs> it's, it's both a self-contradiction and a logical of highly problematic feature of the neoliberal order. My, 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 uh, if one's going to write about neoliberalism and market freedom, from the 1970s to the to the um, through the 20 teens, as I have, one has to face the fact that this is also the moment of uh, mass incarceration in America, uh, reaching its peak in the 1990s and first decade of the 21st century, precisely when the neoliberal order that I'm writing about is reaching its peak. And so, one has to ask, how can this this condition of of mass on freedom coexist with this gospel of freedom that is talking about emancipating everybody. And how, how do the two go together? And I've given it a lot of thought, and um, uh, while also acknowledging that um, uh, it's not an easy question to, to answer, but it's a question that we must try to answer. And and just to put a point on this, the mass at mass. Uh, and the, the mass incarceration regime at its height imprisoned, America imprisoned a greater percentage of its citizens than any other country in the world. And that includes North Korea, China, Iran. I mean, 
this is what we're talking about here. So it, it's not an issue that um, can be avoided. My, my starting point in terms of understanding um, uh, ha how this happened is the, is, is, goes back to classical liberalism, which is where we began our discussion. And in classical liberalism, there, were, there, were, um, there was always the question of who can handle the freedom that liberalism is promising. And the way in which you look to, to see how liberals answered that question is to ask, who do they give the vote to? <laughs> or who do they give citizenship to? Well, in the United States, they, they, they gave the vote to all free white men by the early 19th century, but they didn't give it to women until the early 20th century. So women were deemed a, a category in some important way unfit for freedom. Uh, blacks were enslaved in a good part of the period of classical freedom. And, um, and then there was emancipation, but even after emancipation, there was um, not equal rights um, and many efforts to strip blacks of the right to vote, especially in the Southern states of the late 19th and early 20th century. Uh, the US and Britain, the, the two big liberal countries of the 19th century also became imperial countries. Um, and they had a clear sense of who among the people they colonized was entitled to vote and who was not. And, and those excluded from uh, the right to vote were um, usually people of color of one sort or another. So race, in addition to gender, uh, uh, for a long part of liberalism's history, was considered to be a marker of unfreedom. If you had a certain race, you were not qualified to handle the responsibilities of, of being part of a lib liberal polity. So there's a long tradition of liberalism circumscribing who would be allowed to belong to the liberal polity and have full rights within it. Now, to liberalism's credit, especially under the new liberalism of Franklin Roosevelt, there's an effort to bring into this polity a lot of people who had been excluded from it. Uh, women are included in uh, 1920, a uh, massive effort to enfranchise African-Americans in the 1960s. Uh, so they are, they are being included. So liberalism is trying to make up for past wrongs, but this tradition is old and, um, and it survived. Uh, and as America is um, being hit by racial conflict in the 60s and 70s, some of the conflict verging on insurrection, as there are problems with uh, lawlessness in American cities in the 1970s and 80s, uh, the question that the original liberals posed returns. And that question is, are some people incapable of handling the freedom? <laughs> and a lot of Republicans answer to that question is yes. A lot of people defined by race may be incapable of handling the freedoms that liberal societies grant. So that um, the only way to handle them in, in a way is to lock them up and to remove them from market society altogether. Uh, and uh, I treat this, this is one of the ways in which 
neoliberals use the state to correct problems that the original liberals were not willing to do. And one of the ways in which you can correct it is to remove people who are making market economies difficult to operate, remove them from the market. And of course, there are different ways of defining imprisonment. Imprisonment, of first and foremost, is a loss of rights, right? And 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 a, and 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 a, and a <coughs> and a and severe penalty visited on your personhood. But it, it is also a way of removing people from markets uh, and not allowing them to participate in a way of declaring that they are not responsible to engage responsibly in market activity, and thus they will be removed from it. So there is a, a logic to it, um, which one can understand, uh, grounded in this um, old tradition of liberalism that, that suspects certain groups as, um, as not being capable of handling their freedom and then justifies the stripping away of their freedom by reference to the fact that they are deemed unable to handle it and they don't merit it any longer. Now, um, Nevertheless, it is a contradiction. It, 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 it manages the contradiction without eliminating it. Uh, how long can you sequester huge numbers of Americans in prisons without damaging the neoliberal creed? Uh, there, you know, in the 1990s and first decade of the 21st century, in some cities, um, 50% of black youth were either in jail or had police records. I mean, these are astounding numbers. Uh, how long can you do that and claim that neoliberalism is really working? At what point do you begin to lock up so many people and strip so many people of their freedom that it begins to corrode the neoliberal I I ideal. The neoliberal ideal is that the market can solve all problems. And so this becomes part of what brings neoliberalism down in the, in the 20 teens, when there are popular rebellions beginning with blacks and then extending far beyond the ranks of blacks to many more in the society saying that um, the, the vision of market freedom that neoliberals sold us is a farce if this is what it entails and that we need to think differently about our politics. We need to think, we, need, we can no longer tolerate imprisoning so many people of color uh, for so long. We have to think about other mechanisms for preventing crime, helping to reintegrate those who committed crimes into society and of course, this is going to lead back to the New Deal and to social democracy. Uh, how do we give people what they need in order to flourish in freedom and dignity in a society? And that begins to lead America back toward some kind of social democratic resolution to this rather than relying solely and entirely on market mechanisms. Great. I indeed wanted to talk uh, a bit about that, right? You close your book basically uh, with the present moment in 2021, 22. Um, and I was wondering whether you could say more about in what sense is the, the ne neoliberal era 
perhaps already over? And in what ways is it still being reproduced uh, today, right? I think it suggests some very interesting evidence. And I think there's a lot of contestation around this question, right? What, what will the, the end of neoliberalism look like? And, you know, with, with all the massive problems that, that have been accumulating. And of course, when we talk about the US, we may mention the, the utter uh, mismanagement of, of the occupation of Iraq. And of course, the financial crisis that resulted from, from the financialization of the economy, right? And all these, uh, so to say, major uh, mistakes also, if so to say, neoliberal terms, uh, because, of course, neoliberalism was very central to, to both of these uh, debacles, have led to a situation where the legitimacy uh, is no longer quite there, right? The promise has, has certainly weakened. But then, of course, we live uh, uh, partly because we've been, uh, we've been culturally and socially habituated into a system. We still live with many neoliberal patterns, patterns of thought, also maybe neoliberal practices. So I was wondering how you would how you would see the present moment. Where are we now after the high point of neoliberalism? You know, is really is really over. Well, I I would distinguish between uh, neoliberalism and the neoliberal order being over. The I think what what's ending is the neoliberal order, and and that is the ability of neoliberal ideas and policies to be hegemonic. Uh, certainly various ideas from neoliberalism will survive and continue to influence politics and society in profound ways. Uh, but let me give you one, one way of thinking about how the neoliberal order is ending. I sometimes think of um, a shorthand for understanding the influence of neoliberalism in the world. I think of what I call four freedoms. This is not Roosevelt's four freedoms of the 1940s. This is sometimes what I call the the four freedoms of neoliberalism. It is the free movement of people. Uh, it is a free movement of goods. Uh, it is the free movement of information. And it is the free um, movement of capital. At its, when neoliberalism was at its height in the 1990s, there was a vision that these freedoms would be freedoms of, for everybody in the world. Uh, their ability to move from one place to another, their ability to, to get goods from anywhere in the world. Uh, the internet revolution was going to make the whole world, it was going to put us in where we were. We could access the whole world through a little com com computer screen. And then the free movement of capital, the free movement of capital from country to country. Uh, this was the dream. And this was bound up, of course, with neoliberalism succeeding as a project, project of globalization. I would say each of these freedoms is in retreat, serious retreat. Um, uh, 10 years ago, protectionism was a dirty word. It no longer is. Everyone's um, uh, the um, part of what uh, Trump and Bernie Sanders in the United States both did was to, was to legitimate um, protectionist um, philosophies in ways which they had not been protect, you know, before, that this could be a way of the world. Uh, the free movement of people is, is under challenge in ways it was not during the neoliberal heyday. This, of course, is an issue that Europe is struggling with uh, mightily. Um, we now see uh, uh, various countries in the world trying to create their own sealed information information technology systems. We see this most clearly with China, with Russia, 
Turkey is trying to do something similar. So is Modi in India. Uh, autocrats wanting, believing that they cannot thrive in a society where information is free, so they have to find ways to control it. And suddenly, we're confronted with the possibility that in five or ten years, the world will be living not as one, but in four or five different information blocks. The last freedom I think to be um, eroded is the is is the freedom of capital to move, to convert your currency from one to the other. Uh, but oh my goodness, look at what the Russian invasion of Ukraine has unleashed in terms of capital controls and and the and the kind of sanctions levied on Russia greater than I think levied in, levied on any other nation. I think uh, an extra, which involves an extraordinary de- degree of um, restraint, not just of trade information um, and people, but it, it also um, constrains the movement of capital and also the willingness of hundreds, if not thousands of companies not to do business in Russia anymore. What, is this, what does this mean for a global world? Uh, we don't know how the Russian-Ukraine crisis is, is going to end, um, but certainly this willingness to impose limits on the movement of capital is going to create an opening for all sorts of people who want to rethink this question, how free should capital be to move in the world, right? We, we can, that question has become front and center. That to me signals that the age, the era of the neoliberal order is ending because now we can begin to contemplate using capital controls, movements on the, on the, on the, uh, on the uh, controls on the movement of capital um, controls on where billionaires put their fortunes, um, and so on and so forth. And, um, I think this is going to have, this is going to further the questioning of the neoliberal order. And it's going to incline people to say, maybe for the sake of greater equalization of wealth in the world, we have to think more seriously than we have about controls on the movement of capital and who has capital and who doesn't. So I think this to me signifies that we are moving into another age quite re- irrespective of how the conflict in Russia and Ukraine ends. Um, so I th- if we measure the neoliberal order by these four freedoms, I would say we're seeing retreats in every phase of this, which suggests to me we're moving into something else. And uh, I think we've been moving for some time. I think. The, the crisis over COVID uh, also has raised questions about um, uh, freedom, right? And, and its management, which is gonna cause us to think in quite different ways about this in coming years. Now, having said that, you can't have an order as powerful as neoliberalism has been um, without survivals. Um, the deregulatory impulse in the United States is still very strong, remove controls on private industry, let them do what they want to do. That's very strong. The financialization of the economy, both the U.S. and elsewhere, the central role that banks now have, I don't see that as going away. I, th- I think that um, the character of banks may begin to change. They may become um, more subject to efforts to control them with democratic authority. 
than they have been in the past. So, but I think the financialization of the economy is not going away. And I think uh, we, we all have now um, been living for decades with uh, neoliberal modes of reason. Something Wendy Brown, I think, has written about with, with great effect. And we have a tendency to uh, treat anything that we do as a series of inputs and outputs that can be measured precisely and improved through uh, a little adjustment here, a little adjustment there, that we can make ourselves the, make ourselves the finest versions of ourselves if we are, you know, just carry this to every detail. And we are, I think neoliberalism has launched a, as is part of what has launched us on this um, uh, extraordinary um, campaign of self-measurement, constantly measuring ourselves, uh, miles walked, steps taken, um, the, the, the way in which athletes are now subjected to constant analysis about their inputs and outputs and, and their improvement. The, the number of times we all check our where our books are on Amazon or how many likes we have on Twitter or on Facebook. And this, of course, is something that goes well across um, partisan lines. It's not just something, it's not something that the right is doing. It's something that the left is not doing. We're all doing it. There are these forms of neoliberal reason and being that have become very, very powerful, of course, infused by the technological revolution. Uh, and I think if I understand Wendy Brown correctly, she wants us to revolt against that. And part of her pessimism about uh, um, emerging from a neoliberal present into a non-neoliberal future is that she feels these habits of thought are so entrenched that we will always be returning to them. I actually don't think that's the case. Um, I spent a lot of time, you referred in the book uh, to the, the new left and its emancipatory stirrings and one man, Stuart Brand, who published the whole Earth catalog and um, invented the term personal computer and, and uh, was very instrumental in helping people rebel against the over-bureaucratized, uh, over-organized society that they felt themselves to be living in. And, uh, and Stuart Brand and, and the new left have had enormous impact on how we have lived our lives. I think we'll see another new left. Let's call it a new new left, or maybe we'll call it a neo-left that will begin to take on the tyranny of certain neoliberal habits of reason as the new left took on what it regarded as the over, over-organized society's uh, tyrannies uh, in terms of how they were subjecting individuals to too much control I think that rebellion will come, but I would say it hasn't occurred yet, and exactly what form it will take will be one of the most interesting questions of the 2020s. Great. I think you could perhaps close on raising one of the most important and interesting questions of the coming uh, decade. I think this has been a very rich and also complex and finely balanced answer concerning a subject which has been the subject 
of a lot of polemic, right? Polemic also where neoliberalism almost appeared like an elite conspiracy, like you mentioned. Also a lot of uh, defensive uh, posture by people who have vested interest in representing this in a certain way. And I think this new monograph by Gary Gerstel titled The Rise and Fall of the Neoliberal Order, America and the World in the Free Market Era, has a lot of surprises and a lot of insights to offer to every reader. I have personally benefited a lot from reading it, and it's been a great pleasure discussing it with its author. Thank you so much for being on the show today, Professor Gerstel. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity to discuss this new book with you. Thank you so much for taking the time, and thank you everyone for listening. Until the next time. <music>